Luke 12, 13 through 21 tells us, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. I couldn't be more excited to be a part of our church and just to have a front row seat to the way that God's at work in us and through us. And this August will mark my eight-year anniversary with, with our church. And speaking on behalf of my, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to be here. So, uh, and, and, and I know I speak for my family when I say that. It's, it's, I look out and I see so many faces, and, and to think that our lives are intertwined just gives us great joy. And it wasn't long after arriving here that we realized we wanted to put down roots, and so we bought a house about five miles down the road in Clemens West. And I'm not sure about the dynamics in your particular neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, I feel like I've gotten to know a segment of the population. Like some people, they come home from work at the end of the day, they, they, they click the garage door opener, they drive in, and then they head inside for the night. But there's some other people that they don't have that luxury. You dog owners... You have to take Fido for a walk, and because I like to tinker around in the yard, I've gotten to know the folks in the neighborhood who have dogs, and sometimes I find myself wondering, how is it that you ended up with a dog who looks just like you? <laughs> you know, like, ha has, has, has anyone else ever had this experience? You know what I'm talking about? And, and you know, you know, I, I'm not sure how this phenomenon works, if it's like, you know, like your dog gradually begins to look more like you, or you look more like your dog. But, but sometimes the resemblances are just, they're uncanny. For, for example, you, you can't tell me they don't look alike, do they? Now, now clearly this next guy, he knows that he looks like his dog, and he's, and he, he's embraced it. But, but I think other times there's, there's people that maybe are oblivious to it. Like this lady right here. That, D does she even know why someone thought this was an interesting picture? You wonder. Some, sometimes it's actually kind of cute when, uh, when dogs look like their owners. Like, oh, look at this. A puppy and a baby, yeah. Like, you have to say, oh, that, or you've got ice water in your veins. But, but you know, sometimes I wonder why. Why would a, would a grown person purposely try and look like, like a four-legged animal outside of Halloween. You, you can't tell me this was coincidental or this next one. That doesn't happen by accident. Now, I, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm, I'm just observing. 
And, and maybe this is because of some intentionality on, on the part of the dog owners, or perhaps these, these four-legged canines who, who can't hold a brush and don't know how to groom themselves and left to their own devices would, would eat their own vomit, have somehow managed to make themselves look more like their owners. It, it, it could go either way, right? You know? But, but, but either way, th- this phenomenon demonstrates uh, an important truth. And that truth is this. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. And that means for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who should have our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we should become more like our Savior. And in fact, the Bible tells us that this is one of the goals of our salvation. Romans 8, 29 says this. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be, help me out here, let's read this last part together, conformed to the image of his son. And so if you're a Christian, God's purpose for your life is to be conformed to the image of whom? Help me out here. Jesus. That's right. And here's the way this works. When when we confess our sins and, and we acknowledge our need for a Savior and we ask Jesus to become the Lord of our lives, God begins this restoration project in our lives. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, comes and establishes a a, a beachhead in our lives, and He begins to go to work, and He changes us from the inside out, making us look more like Jesus. This is why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We should become what we behold. And this is the heart of our spring study. Early in the year, we we discussed the values that define our church collectively, and now we're giving thought to the marks that should characterize our lives individually. You see, what happens is when we follow the the discipleship pathway, when we worship together, we grow in a group, when we serve on a team, when we go with a mission, we avail ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. We, We position ourselves for the Holy Spirit to go to work in our lives, and these seven marks should become more and more evident in our lives. Now, what I want to make clear is is that these aren't like things that we need to work on in order to be saved. This isn't stuff we need to do, do, do so that we can become acceptable to God. Because the central message of Christianity isn't do, 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 it's done, done, done. Jesus Christ died once the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And, 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 and all these marks are, or the, these, this is the evidence of God continuing his good work in our lives after we become members of his family. And that happens by grace through faith in Jesus. And so these marks are just, are, are just useful tools for reflection. They, they help us answer this, the, the question, uh, am, I, am, I, am I growing in the ways that God wants me to grow? They help us be more intentional about the way that God's wanting to grow us and transform us. And I want to build upon the list you see up there by calling our attention to a fifth mark that should characterize our lives. And that mark is this. It's generous giving. We must grow in generous giving. And I know if you're here and and you're a spiritual seeker, all of a sudden, like, the defenses just went up. And you're thinking, like, I knew it. I, I I knew this was a cult. And I just, I want to assure you, like, we do not want anything from you. 
And, and, and my hope for you is that you could just kind of think of this as, um, as wandering in to, to a family meeting. We want you to eavesdrop, and my hope is that as a result of your being here, you, you would just come to think, like, okay, I understand why Christians talk about giving and why it's important to them, and I understand how, how giving and Christianity are connected, and this isn't some cultish thing. This morning, we'll look specifically about what Jesus had to say about generous giving, and our text is the passage that Grace read for us earlier. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We'll look at verses 13 to 21. It's a great parable. We're going to see a request, a refusal, a warning, uh, a parable, and then, and then the summary. Well, let's begin now in verse 11, or rather 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the passage doesn't tell us this, but you can't help but wonder if the guy who asked the question is thinking, well, thanks a lot, Jesus. You know, like you could have just said no. You didn't have to be rude about it. And and to our modern ears, it might sound like Jesus was a little harsh, that, that Jesus is lacking in some social tact here. But as we peel back the layers, we'll see that wasn't the case. The passage begins with this request that seems innocent enough, right? Like, hey, Jesus, weigh in on our family feud. But there's a little more to it than that. This brother has already decided what justice requires. He says, says, Jesus, tell my brother, order my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's like the kid who says, Mom, tell my brother to give me the Xbox. In that situation, they've already made up their mind what justice looks like. And they're looking for an authority figure to come and to uphold, to validate the, the conclusion they've already come to. And those of you with multiple children, you've, you've received requests like this before, right? Yes. Er, earlier this week, I'm driving home on Monday night. I've got two of my kids in the back of my truck. And all of a sudden, I hear this, I hear this screaming and, I, and yelling. And I, and, I, and I turn around to discover that they're fighting over, are you ready for this? A yellow bungee cord. <laughs> Seriously, I, I'm, I'm not talking like, like an iPad. I'm not talking like some brand new game. I'm not, I'm not talking like a, a cool new toy. I'm talking like a $2 luggage strap, you know, that you use to hold something in place. And, and, and they both have like a death grip on this thing. And neither one of them wants to give it up. And they're both laying claim to it. And I hear like, Daddy, tell Maddie to give me the cord. And I hear Maddie, no, he wasn't playing with it anymore, you know. It's mine. Tell Ian to give it to me. And and they both want it, right? And guess what I did? (laughs) I made the mistake of of being judge and arbiter in this situation. This is like pure parenting genius right here. This is straight out of Super Nanny. So so one kid got it for one minute, and the next kid got it for one minute. And and like we were home in four minutes, and it didn't matter because all their toys were there. But it sure mattered in that moment. Now, in hindsight, it would have been far better to do what we see Jesus doing in this situation, and that is to get to the heart of the matter. Like Jesus in this situation, he bypasses the trivial issue in order to teach a more important lesson. In my case, I could have launched into a lesson on 
like why selfishness is always ugly or something like that. In Jesus' case, this particular question tees up an opportunity for a lesson on how our possessions relate to our purpose in life. Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And although this refusal might sound uh, rude to our modern ears, commentators agree that this wasn't a harsh response. Jesus is quoting from Exodus 2, 14, where Moses intervenes in this dispute between two men, and, and his Jewish audience would have picked up on this reference. And now, after, after addressing the brother directly in verse 14, we note the pronoun change in verse 15. Jesus goes from addressing him to addressing them, right? He's now talking to the crowd, and he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus detects this covetousness behind the man's request. And he knows, like, this isn't an isolated request. Like, this is a virus that's, that's gone global, that's spread worldwide. And so he issues this warning that's applicable to everyone. The particular danger that we all need to be on guard against is what? Help me out here. Covetousness, that's right. Many translations use the word greed. It, it can be defined here as a, as a selfish desire for more. It's, it's a thirst for more than we need. And, and it's a danger because when we approach life with this mindset that, that more will make us happy, it's like the person who decides to drink ocean water to satisfy their thirst. Now, how well does that work? It doesn't, does it? What happens is the the ocean water has more salt in it than our kidneys can effectively process. And so as we drink it, we become thirstier and thirstier until we finally we die of dehydration. It's the same way with greed. You get what you want, but then guess what happens? You want more, right? And so you get chasing more and more. And you keep getting more, but you never really find any contentment. And Jesus says, take care. Other translations use the word watch out or beware or take heed. If you've ever walked through a dark alley at night or you've ever gone through like a haunted house, you you know the mindset that Jesus is calling for. When you're in those situations, you have your head on a swivel, don't you? And that's what Jesus is calling for here. He's saying that there should be constant vigilance. This should be our mentality when it comes to greed. You know what's interesting to me? I, I, I... I didn't like research this, but somebody maybe can check it out for me later. But I don't think Jesus says, watch out or take heed or be on guard against any other sin. And I think it would be, it'd be a good idea to like watch out against adultery or against anger or some of these other things. But I, I take this to mean that I think we need to be especially conscious. We need to be especially aware as it relates to all covetousness. So when Jesus says all, it's not just money. It's all forms of it, the thirst for more power, the thirst for more praise, the thirst for more first place prizes. And, and we need to take heed because greed is such a sneaky thing. It's so subtle. It doesn't come and like pounce on us like a lion. It's more like this, uh, this, this thing that slowly creeps up on us and, and gradually entangles us like a vine. And Jesus tells us why we need to be on guard against this. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, let's just think for a moment about how countercultural this statement is. 
We're immersed in a consumer-driven society that's constantly encouraging us to acquire more. And the folks at the agencies, ad agencies, those of you that work for an ad agency, I just want to affirm you. You're really good at what you do. Like, you, you, you know how to bait the line. You're good at it. And, and you know how to take your product and connect it with our ability to obtain, like, a good life, a satisfying life. It, and the reality is, you do such a good job of it, I sometimes find myself wanting more. I'll be honest, like even this week, for some reason, you know what I found myself wanting? Like, I don't need this, but I wanted one of those old Land Cruisers, like the 80s versions, you know, the big Bach ones. Like, wouldn't it be cool to have one of those? Like, I already have a, I already have a car, but I, that's what I find myself wanting more of. And I'm sure that's something, you know, if we went around, we surveyed all of us, there's something more we wanted this week. And so, as just a suggestion for us, here's a thought. You know how packs of cigarettes have a warning from the Surgeon General on them? Well, I'm thinking it might be helpful if we did something similar before spending money on ourselves. Now, let me be clear. It's, it's not wrong to acquire goods. In fact, the buying and selling of goods and services is important for the flourishing of our economy. But what Jesus is warning against here is our motives. And as a way of, of guarding against unhealthy desire for more, what if we envision Jesus' warning on, on everything that we're about to buy for ourselves. So say, for instance, you're like considering a new bike or, or a necklace or a set of golf clubs or a boat. You know, I think there might be wisdom in imagining Jesus' words like stamped on them. So let's just suppose you're like you're looking through the boat catalog of all the boats, and then there it is at the bottom. Like, it's not saying it's wrong to buy this, but what about if we just had to consider that? Like, okay, just remember, life does not consist in abundance of our possessions. Or what about the things like that we already own, that we know that we're tempted to look to for like meaning and happiness? What about if you just took a Sharpie and wrote on them, like life does not consist in abundance of possessions? That could be a really interesting conversation starter. Like your buddy comes and he's like, hey, why did somebody write on a Sharpie on the side of your boat? And you'd be like, oh, I did that. I did that. I, I wanted to remind myself that like the, the true life, the life that God wants to give me is, is, is relational rather than material, and it's eternal rather than temporal, and, 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 and my meaning and my purpose in life don't come from the accumulation of stuff. I, I'm not saying you have, I mean, it would be good, I think, if some of us did that, but I think the more important thing is because that we're, we're bombarded with, with commercials and pop-ups all the time, that, that it would be good for us to figure out a way to keep Jesus' words in front of us on a regular basis. Well, Jesus follows this warning with a parable to drive home his point. Beginning now in verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now notice with me the opening line of the parable. Now all you grammarians out there, what's the subject of this sentence? It's not the rich man, it's the land, that's right, I heard it. So here's what's going on. Jesus is emphasizing that the windfall that this man experienced was due to the productivity of the ground. His prosperity is ultimately derived from a source other than himself. And you know this is true for all of us as well. The Bible is very clear about this. Deuteronomy 8.17 says, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power 
to get wealth. We might be tempted to credit ourselves thinking, well, you know, I just, I knew how to time the market. And God says, well, like, I actually created the conditions that enabled the, the market, the economy to thrive. You might say, well, like, well, I went out and I got an advanced degree and I worked hard. And God's sitting there thinking, like, I gave you your mental faculties. You might say, well, you know, I, I knew what to plant and I knew when to plant it. And God's thinking, like, how well would you have done without the sun? Everything that we have, God's ultimately the source of it. But this man is oblivious to it. He's focused on one person. And let's see if you can figure out who that is. All right? Listening ears. And Jesus continues. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Any guesses who this guy's focused on? Himself. You saw all those first-person pronouns. It's I, I, I. It's, it's, it's my crops, my barns, my goods, my grain. Instead of turning his thoughts toward God, Jesus introduces us to a man who thinks about himself first and the accumulation of more for his own enjoyment. And here's why this parable is so intriguing. This man's additional wealth came to him honestly. He's like a legitimate, successful businessman, and he has a real dilemma. He's got a large crop and no place to store it. And so quite naturally, he comes up with a, with a solution, a way of resolving the problem. But look how Jesus concludes this parable. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus calls him a fool. And these are strong words. But why was he foolish? Didn't this man demonstrate foresight and planning? I mean, he wasn't unjust. He wasn't immoral. He was prudent, right? He, he had a long-range vision and an exit strategy. I mean, this is the kind of strategic thinking that gets celebrated in conferences and magazines. So why does Jesus call this man a fool? Is it because he was rich? No, because he was rich at the beginning of the story. The, the, the main issue of the parable is not wealth, but it's one's use of it. Rather than viewing himself as a steward or a manager of God's resources, this man wrote God out of the picture. It's entirely possible that he, he went like to the synagogue weekly, but practically, but functionally, the way he lived his life, he was an atheist. Because when it came to his stuff, God never entered his thoughts. He never, he never wondered like, God, what would you want me to do with this? Or God, you know, you matter most to me in my life. And as a way of demonstrating that, here's how I want to be rich toward you. He managed his resources in a way that showed that he had no regard for God and that he rested his hope in his wealth. He, he allocated his resources as if life consisted in the abundance of his possessions, the very warning Jesus gives us not to do. And Jesus says this guy is a fool because he won't take a dime of it with him when he dies. It's the ultimate, like, you can't take it with you parable from Jesus. It reminds me of the, the billionaire who passed away, and someone asked his accountant, like, what, you know, how much did your employer leave behind when he died? And you know what the accountant said? All of it. All of it. And, th and that's what's going on here. 
Jesus said this guy left everything behind. This guy thinks he's set for the future, but he hasn't done anything to prepare himself for eternity. And, and the summary of the parable is revealed in verse 21. Jesus ends with this. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know how the parable of the Good Samaritan ends? It ends with like, go and do likewise. Jesus is essentially saying the opposite here. He's saying, do not go and do likewise. Don't let your desire for more in this life rob you from eternal treasure. This man is not a fool because he had wealth, but because he managed his wealth in a very short-sighted and self-centered way. Now listen, like we all have wealth. All of us, even the students, you've, you've got some of it. And, and the point of the parable isn't go and get rid of all your wealth. The point is, how are you managing it? I've got a friend who's enjoyed some success in the business world, and I, I recall asking him a few years back if I could borrow some of his stuff, you know, for this ministry event I was putting on. You know what he said? He was like happy I called to ask. He's like, of course, I'm glad you asked. He said, that's what it's there for. That's what it's there for. And, and as he's aged, he's built bigger barns, but not for the same reasons as the guy in this parable. And the first question he asks himself is, God, what would you want me to do with what you've entrusted to me? And because he's been faithful with little, I think it excites God to give him more. God keeps blessing him more because he likes the way he's stewarding it. And, and, and the question for all of us is, are you becoming more Christ-like with the way that you're giving? Are you growing in generous giving? And if you want to answer that question, all you have to do is look at where your resources are going. When, when you inventory what's leaving your hands, does it reveal that you're being rich toward God or that you're piling up treasure for yourself? Richness toward God means stewarding our resources in a way that honors Him. God says, honor me with your wealth, with your first fruits. I would just, from that I conclude that God wants us to give him our first and our very best, not the leftovers. It's not kind of like, well, and if this happens, then I'll, or, or when this happens, when I get this paid off, then I'll. It's a, no, just honor me first. And God also tells us to give to the needy. God so identifies with the poor and the widow and the orphan that in Proverbs 19.7, we find this, that whoever is kind to the poor lends to who? Lends to the Lord. And when we're rich toward God in these ways, there's great reward. Not only do we lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal, but what happens is we, we position ourselves to experience the life that God wants to give us. And my, and my, my hope is that all of us will, will cultivate a life of faith and trust with the way that we handle our stuff, that we'll be generous givers so that we can experience the abundant life that God wants to give us. So, th so that we can discover that, that there's great gain, not in the accumulation of stuff, but it's godliness. It, godliness with great gain is what leads to contentment. And, and some of you, some of you are already there. And, that, and that's great. You're leaning into this. And I hope this passage this morning has been a wonderful encouragement to you. I hope you're thinking to yourself, 
it's just good to be reminded that we're not crazy for being rich toward God. And for some of us, maybe this passage is a little more convicting. It's like, okay, this is, this is an area I need to grow to be more Christ-like. Not, not because God wants your money. Let me be really clear on that. What God wants is our hearts. And what we do with our money is a reflection of where our hearts are. And so I want to encourage you. Think about this. And, and, I, and I pray that our Savior who gave us these words will by His Spirit come and strengthen us so that we can yield this aspect of our life over to God and that we can step out in obedience. Let me pray for us. God, we know that no one is more generous than you. From the very first page in the Bible to the very last chapter, we see you giving. Thank you that you gave us life. Thank you for the promises you gave to all the saints. Thank you for your promise to send a Savior. And when we think about that gift that you gave us in sending a Savior, we, we think of perhaps the most well-known verse in all the Bible. How you so loved the world that you gave us your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we thank you that when we accept that, that you give us yourself, that you invite us into fellowship and communion with you, and we have that to look forward to. And we pray that as we dwell on these things, that you would be magnified in us with the way that we handle our things, that, that we would be able to reflect your image, that we would reflect your likeness to the world, and that we would experience the life, the abundant life, the good life that you want to give us. And God, where there's... Where there's apprehension to do this because of security issues. I pray that you would open our eyes to see your great promises and how you hold us in the palm of your hand. And God, where there, where there isn't a saving knowledge of you, I pray that you would, you would illuminize so that everyone would see the beauty of our Savior that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.